This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Courtney Bell. Courtney is the founder of Ungraded Produce, an ugly produce delivery service fighting food waste while improving food access in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. She founded the company while studying environmental science at Duke University. Um, after spotting a business opportunity to divert food that normally goes unpicked or unsold because of its appearance to customers who have difficulty accessing fresh produce. So she's definitely someone trying hard to do good through food. So it's a real pleasure to have her as a guest. Courtney, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for uh, making the time to come on. I wanted to ask you, what what is it? about the East Coast. There, it seems to me, like as, a, as somebody based in the UK, um, or it's starting to seem to me like there's this real focus on food and sustainability um, in, in that part of the States particularly. Is, I suppose, first, is that right? And why do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, where I'm located, you know, in North Carolina on the East Coast, it's a very um, liberal, educated, you know, group of people who are very aware of various environmental issues, social issues, how the two can be connected. But I think food waste is definitely a hot topic in America right now, but it actually, a lot of what's going on here was inspired by the work that um, people were doing in Europe. In fact, the uh, idea that for the ungraded produce came about through seeing how some French supermarkets were introducing ugly produce into their stores. And I think that was because the EU declared 2014 the year against food waste. And so businesses were really pushed to find innovative solutions to cut down on waste. So, um, and then, you know, Americans took notice of these really awesome, you know, initiatives. So, you know, where I'm located now, um, it's still sort of a newer topic. It was recently just introduced in, you know, restaurants and, you know, people that were doing ugly produce stuff there, but you don't see it yet in stores for a variety of reasons. So companies like ours, you know, are making the public aware and we're doing something that grocery store chains in our country don't have the capability of doing. So it feels very grassrooty, which people, um, especially where I'm located in like the Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina area, people really respond well to that local grassroots kind of an effort. Um, and they just see it as something that like, it's kind of going against man, you know, so people, <laughs> people respond well to that at this time. So they, they like, they like that in that part of the world. It's, you're right. I mean, it seems like the French have kind of take, have, have really led on this, you know, in a lot of ways. That's really interesting to hear. I'd, I'd love to just sort of jump right, jump in, I guess, and kind of talk about the company itself and sort of what it is you're doing. And maybe kind of first off, the sort of the mission itself. I, I was wondering, did the idea for it, did it kind of, did it arrive in your head fully formed? Or is this something that you've sort of worked out as you've gone along? Yeah, I am the first one to admit that I completely walked into this opportunity. So a little background on myself. Um, when I started Duke as a freshman, I was really passionate about food sustainability. Um, I spent all my free time reading like Michael Pollan books and those types of, you know, food system books when I was in high school. And this was the, you know, I was really passionate about the environment in general, but from an academic standpoint, I really cared mostly about the food and ag side of things as opposed to like water or energy. Um, so I knew I wanted to focus on that while I was at Duke. Um, so fast forward though, to the end of my sophomore year and I... At that point, just due to course requirements, hadn't had an opportunity to really pursue this interest. Um, and that summer, I was at an internship in Detroit doing something really unrelated and starting to feel a little bit, uh, you know, down about myself. I didn't really know how to get on this path um, that I cared so much about. Um, and I was 
forward to tears of my internship. Um, but what happened was about a month in, I received a text from a friend of mine who was in my sorority um, about a business idea she had. Um, and it was essentially um, the idea that was, you know, became ungraded produce. Um, what had happened was she was interning for the mayor of Durham, North Carolina um, that summer and working on a poverty reduction initiative. And she was in a lot of Durham's low-income neighborhoods, interacting with members of the community um, during the project and learned a lot about not only food insecurity, but the really high demand for fresh, affordable produce in these neighborhoods, which are considered food deserts, which as you may know, um, are areas that have a really low concentration of you know, retail outlets that can sell, you know, fresh and affordable, healthy foods. Um, so, you know, she just can't, just can't kind of get yeah, too that. Yeah, there's a lot of issues there. You know, in these neighborhoods, mm -hmm. it tends to be heavily concentrated with fast food, you know, stores and um, like bodegas, liquor stores, just no, places that really aren't selling, you know, fresh produce. Or if it is, it's like, you know, you know, really expensive, low quality, not very much of it. Um, and on top of that, a lot of these individuals in these, you know, neighborhoods may, um, because they're not, they don't live near a uh, grocery store, um, but they may also lack the transportation to get to one that's located further out. So um, there's not a lot of opportunities sometimes for these people, regardless of budgetary constraints, even to access fresh food. So she wanted to do something about this um, and sort of had a aha moment because her mom was doing a lot of business in France at that time and had you know, mentioned to her, oh, these French supermarkets are doing all this stuff with ugly produce. They're interesting into their stores. They're popularizing it. And so she realized, she put two and two together and realized, hey, maybe there's an opportunity to, you know, tap into the ugly produce market in North Carolina, um, which by the way, ugly produce is stuff that is just, you know, misshapen, too big, too small, has a bit of atypical coloring, or maybe just some minor scarring, but nothing that's like a low quality product. It's, you know, just has a little bit of a cosmetic it's, defect. It's, it's yeah. 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 So she realized that, you know, there's an opportunity to maybe get this produce in North Carolina, buy it at a discount because it's normally not getting sold to supermarkets um, and then sell it at a discount to food insecure members of our community who would then benefit from, you know, discounted product and, you know, uh, home delivery service because now um, there's no transportation barriers to accessing fresh food. So she texted me about this idea because of my interest in food sustainability. Um, and what really excited me um, because of my environmental background was the opportunity to fight food waste. Um, so we sort of that summer from Durham and Detroit kind of just dove in at our internships and spent all of our free time just trying to learn about the industry um, set meetings with people in our respective towns who were in like the startup community, food communities, food banks, all this stuff. And just, we had no prior business experience. We were 20 and just started to figure it out. Um, and so when we returned, um, to school that fall as juniors, I actually was abroad in London, but we had managed to, uh, we had managed somehow to get free legal services from Duke Law Schools, one of their, their clinics that helps student startups. Um, once again, kind of accidentally walked into that opportunity. So I was Skyping in from abroad in London while we were creating you know, our foundational documents and spent that year sort of preparing, learning. And then we got a little grant um, from one of the graduate schools um, that helped us secure the resources to launch a trial period um, on Duke's campus our senior year. And from there, we sort of grew from word of mouth. And um, once we graduated, I began to run it full time and it's been a yeah. year. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. So you started it 
you started it on the campus. You kind of all this planning had gone into it. Um, when when did it sort of you know it actually kind of became real? I suppose when you did the when you, the first did collections and deliveries and everything else. What what maybe you could sort of tell me about that? What that mm-hmm. was like and, and how that worked. Yeah. So we had to have this plan that we wanted to do a trial period on campus our senior fall semester. Um, but we were really struggling to get everything together leading up to the school year. And it wasn't until like three weeks before the school year that we'd secured a refrigeration space at a nearby you know, warehouse, um, got our first farm and signed up our first customers. And we had 15 customers that semester and half of them were in our sorority. So it was kind of cheating a little bit, but you know. Um, it's how everything gets yeah. done. So that semester yeah. we delivered to 15 customers, one box out of the back of my trunk, you know, just going around. and. Um, but, you know, we got a little bit of press in like Duke's newspaper, which helped us grow both on and off campus next semester. But I feel like it, it really didn't become real until we were getting close to graduating, because at that point, um, A, it was the summer. I couldn't rely on having a student customer base. But B, I was in a program for student entrepreneurs that year where um, we had to reach we had to set a milestone um, and reach it by the end of the school year to be, you know, continue on the program and get some summer funding. And my milestone was to have 50 new customers signed up for the summer, which meant I had to find 50 customers who were not students to sign up. And that felt like an impossible task at the time because I did not know um, the community really beyond Duke's campus. I had no marketing background. So we did it. We exceeded our milestone. Um, and it really came out of one customer of ours posting on their neighborhood listserv. But, um, you know, it wasn't until then that I felt real. And so once I graduated and started to deliver mainly to a residential customer base, um, it started to really pick up and we were offering new products. And I was really facing now the challenges of running a company. Um, Whereas before I was very, you know, sheltered, kind of running it as a student, you know, there was only so much you can do. So uh, busy being a student as well. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's when it really felt real. So when when you were signing those first guys up what, what were you signing them up to exactly were you was it sort of like a commitment to a certain amount of yeah of deliveries or how did it work? yeah so first when we got started we only offered one box and it was just a 10 pound vegetable box um because we really only had uh relationships with vegetable farms at that time um and then we originally structured our subscription um based on like semesters so we offered it was only a, an every other week delivery um, and there was like a defined start and end period and you were locked in. Um, and then if you wanted to renew for the spring semester, great. But, um, you know, so people had to commit. Um, and once we graduated, we um, switched over to a recurring model where people could sign up whenever they want. But then they could also cancel whenever they wanted. Um, they never had to resubscribe. It's just ongoing. And um, we felt that really helped with retention. Didn't have, you know, people didn't have to worry about not liking the service and then being locked in. So, um I think that really helped the program a lot. So when you, I suppose the, the to put it simply, like how do you get the food in the first place? You said you, you know, you got you got your first farmer, your first um, farm on board, your first producer. Um, I mean, was that sort of typical? And how how do you get how do you get somebody on board? How does it work? Yeah. So I thought the the process of you know finding farms to partner with was going to be so easy because based on our initial research you know, farms just had piles and piles of ugly produce, um, you know, sitting around or so it seemed. Um, What we really did learn was that um, it was going to be much harder actually to source ugly produce than we originally intended. The main reason 
being, well, there's two reasons. The first, the area that we're located in the Raleigh-Durham area has plenty of like small farms, but um, small farms that, you know, work with farmers markets and restaurants tend to pick all of their product as is. They're already selling it at a premium. Um, they didn't really have an ugly product that they distinguished from their regular product. So we also couldn't buy, you know, large volumes from them. So we worked with some of those farms early on, but it wasn't a, you know, sustainable relationship. Um, the real source of ugly produce waste occurs on large industrial um, sized farms. Um, and on those farms, um, growers, they train their, you know, employees to just not even pick ugly produce in the first place, usually. So it's not the case that, oh, they're picking all of the produce and then they're sorting out thousands of pounds of ugly produce and it's just sitting there. No, they just don't bother to pick in the first place. They can't justify like the labor and, you know, costs for harvesting and packing and everything. So, you know, first of all, we're not even located near those farms. So, Developing partnerships with them at our small size was not realistic, but also we would have to grow to be large enough to really incentivize these farms to retrain their employees to pick this product. So we realized very early on it was going to be a lot more difficult than we originally intended to source, you know, exclusively ugly produce. So sometimes we had to lax our standards. Um, we also source sometimes a lot of like excess produce, so still fresh, but um, stuff that just doesn't have a committed buyer. So it was also at risk of going to waste. Um, so we kind of, you know, broadened um, our, you know, our scope for at least a while. And we figured that as we continue to grow, we'll be able to, you know, continue to make the right partnerships needed um, to source as much ugly produce as possible. But we've also found, you know, some ways to uh, to still source ugly produce at our small size. So um, it just required us to sort of work with some different players at different level, stages of the supply chain. Mm. I just think if the um, if this food sort of wasn't even being picked, you know, if it's just sort of in the field, I mean, is there, was there ever a, a sort of uh, possibility of picking it, you're, you know, picking it directly or, I mean, I don't know if that's something a producer would even consider, I don't know, I don't know, or allow. But. Yeah, there is a couple small farms we have relationships with where they would have been down for us to pick the produce ourselves, but we're, you know, we just don't have the bandwidth to be a gleaning company as well, um, but and, you know, so it's never something we really even offered, but just from knowing people who are also in like the gleaning community um, and having talked to farmers myself about the issue right now, um, a lot of times um, farms won't even let um, gleaning organizations uh, come onto their fields because due to, um, I believe it's like um, gap, um, you know, some of the gap regulations, um, there are some concerns about having people like on your field. I don't know the exact details of it, but um, there's, yeah, just some food art regulations out there that make people concerned about bringing volunteers uh, onto your field, even if it's to glean product, which is upsetting because, you know, everyone really benefits from the gleaning process. But, you know, obviously um, farmers don't want to do anything that, you know, that could uh, compromise their, you know, you know, certifications or, you know, everything. Like yeah, of course, of course. Um, so, I mean, how... Yeah. Obviously, there are kind of barriers to it, but how how keen do you typically find a producer is to get involved? I mean, are they, if you can kind of present them a commercial case, you know, I, I imagine that's one thing. Do they do a lot of them? Are, are they concerned with the sort of the waste and the sustainability sort of aspect? As well? do, do they want to get involved if they can? That's sort of a really tough issue. Um, and there may be a lot of variables, such as, you know, our company's small size, the fact that I'm a young female, you know, entrepreneur that may be sort of 
holding us back sometimes. But one thing that um, I know someone who uh, has done a lot of really important research about ugly produce food waste at the farm level. And one thing that she told me very early on is that when you're approaching a grower, you want to try to not talk about food waste because there's sometimes there's a pride issue here. I don't want to, you know, generalize, but at least in North Carolina, the agricultural community tends to be predominantly white, male, and a little older, you know, it's definitely um, not a, you know, as much a young community, um, which obviously people cite as being an issue that we don't have young farmers. But, um, and so because that people are very used to, you know, the old way of doing things and are less receptive to young people coming in and trying to shake things up. Um, so sometimes there's a little bit of a denial about having the ugly produce because there's a misconception that having it, selling it, whether at a farm or at a supermarket would, you know, devalue, you know, their grade one product, um, which isn't true, but it is, you know, something that a lot of people believe. So a lot of times you go, you try to talk to people and if you mention ugly produce, they'll sort of, they'll back off. You have to sort of develop a relationship slowly and then eventually be like, Hey, by the way, you know, we're also really interested in sourcing grade two produce. We'd love to buy that stuff from you guys. But you also do find farmers, regardless of, you know, their age and their background, everything who they really are excited about your concept and will go out of their way to help you. And I've developed some of my strongest relationships with growers um, who, you know, we're excited about our mission and just really believe in me and what I'm doing. So um, it's sort of a crapshoot though. You never know, uh, you know, what kind of response you're going to get when you tell people what you're doing. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I imagine it's kind of a, uh, <clears throat> the first time you came up against something negative, like that, I'm sure it was a bit of a shock because you think, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, this good thing and everyone's going to want to kind of get involved. But um, I was interested, really interested actually when you just said, you know, the sort of the young female entrepreneur thing being a barrier sometimes. It was something I was going to ask you about anyway, because you you sort of speak about yourself on the on the website as a sort of female founded company, and I was wondering, does it do you find there are kind of benefits to it as well? Is it is it occasionally that you find that holds you back, or how's it received? There are pros and cons. Like I will admit, I'm not one of those like wave the flag uber feminists, you know, and I'm not always like, well, not that this is related, but I'm not always like. Uh, you know, being a girl has set me back. I've been very lucky to grow up in an environment where, you know, being, you know, a woman is not a disadvantage at all, of course. So I, you know, come from really, you know, the background there. But um, I will admit there have been times where I noticed that, you know, being a woman has set me back. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's just my age or that I'm female or some combination. But so let's just take um, two examples. I was at a meetup for growers and buyers and it's like speed dating you sit with a grower for five minutes you talk about how you can work together you move on and so I was talking to uh, someone who runs a pretty big farm in eastern North Carolina and said like you know I was really interested in sourcing product I'd heard of them before and blah 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 blah. Um, and so he said you know well okay my parents run the farmer's market stand in Raleigh go talk to them and I was like excuse me, we're here talking together. You're the head farmer. I'm the head buyer. Like, why can't we talk? Don't send me to your, your parents who run the farmer's market stand. You know, that felt like a bit of an insult. Um, yeah. Another example, I was at an event a couple months ago and I happened to see a, uh, 
berry supplier there. And I'd been sort of playing phone tag back in the fall with someone from them. So I was like, oh, I'll go up and say hi. And maybe, you know, sort of restart, you know, resume this dialogue. Um, And there were four gentlemen standing there. And I was with a friend, actually. And so I went up and introduced myself and explained, like, oh, I've been talking to this guy, your company, so-and-so. None of them would even take their hands out from behind their back to shake my hand or give me a business card. And when we walked away, my friend was like, my God, you know. So, you know, it definitely felt like, uh, you know, that I was not being treated. I wasn't given the same respect as someone else would. And I could imagine it may have been because I was young and or female. Um, and I get the issue sometimes. Some people may see this as, oh, this is just a project. This is a phase. You know, she's doing something for school or something. And this isn't going to be a serious thing, even though I tell them, like, I'm running this full time. Um, so there have been times where it's, you know, I've noticed it's been a setback. And maybe I haven't been able to also have serious conversations with certain suppliers because of my age, because I'm female, or because of the size of the company. Um, but there are also times where it's been an advantage. Um, first and foremost, when I was a college student, I was in an entrepreneurial community that being a college student was the norm. So your age obviously wasn't, um, you know, something people, you know, used against you. It was just, you know, status quo. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think people spot, you know, a female entrepreneur that's in a, you know, male dominated industry. And I think they, you know, go out of their way to really help you. I think that there are other people out there. They might kind of find it a little funny what I'm doing, but I think they respect me for it. They know that I was lifting thousands of pounds of produce a week and having to go drive out all these farms and do all these things that are not traditional female roles. And I think that people really respect me for that hard work. And so, you know, now when I call them and try to set up a meeting, they're like, I'm going to do anything for Courtney. I'm going to, we're going to make this meeting happen. And so I can tell that, you know, I think a lot of people respect me too. So, you know, there are pros and cons. Yeah. We were talking before about the, the sort of first stage of the, process you know getting the food from the producers it's fresh produce uh you hand pack it and you deliver it direct to somebody's doorstep and it's still at this big discount sort of 30 to 50 percent cheaper than the grocery stores i suppose how how is it possible to to do that so cheaply it's really tough um produce is already a low margin industry so offering a discounted product that is in turn delivered um and still trying to you know run the company sustainably is really difficult um you know there have been times where we've had to slightly tweak our prices i mean when i started we had no idea what we were doing we slapped a price on you know our product and uh you know said uh you know, this looks reasonable. It wasn't reasonable. So there have been times where we've had to tweak our product. And, you know, recently we did have introduced a very small delivery fee. Um, but we, you know, all of our competitors were doing, you know, doing it too. And it was just, it was necessary. But um, in general, I mean, we, you know, right now we're slightly less focused on, you know, breaking even since we're still a young company and more on just giving people the best product we can. But what's going to be really key as we grow in order to keep, you know, our, you know, costs down is that we're going to continue to offer our core products, which are, you know, ugly produce boxes. And most of that, depending on the time of year, is going to have to be stuff that isn't local. It's, um, you know, stuff that we're getting from warehouses that are sorting out produce before it goes to supermarkets. Um, 
because that's where a lot of ugly produce, you know, goes to waste. Um, so we're going to be offering mainly that. And then we're going to have to separate out special boxes that are all organic or all local and make them more expensive. Because we have some customers who they're really excited about the mission and they love the convenience and they don't really care as much whether the produce is local. And then we have some people who are really feel very strongly about organic and local produce. And we try to satisfy everyone right now with our boxes. But um, as we grow and have the bandwidth to source, you know, a lot more product, we're definitely going to separate out those, you know, nichier boxes and make them more expensive because, you know, it's mm. reflecting the price of the product. And that means that we can, you know, you know, continue to sort of keep costs down with our, you know, core products that are the mm. ones that are truly discounted. Is, is the fact that they, at the moment, they don't, if I understand it right, they don't have a choice around what's, what they get. It's, it's obviously, it's what the yeah. surplus is, it's what you, is what's kind of comes to you. So they sort of, I guess if they're specifying something like it has to be something in particular, then that, that is yeah. a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. So at this point, yeah, we just don't have the, uh, we just aren't far enough along yet to be able to customize boxes. That'll require us to really, you know, change up all these different processes in our operations. But, um, you know, so in the meantime, yes, it's sort of a, you get what you get box. And we try to be really, but we try to, you know, first of all, we, we give people the option to provide us with up to six dislikes. So if there is something on your dislikes list that we're offering that week, we will substitute it out for another product. So that's what, the best that we can do right now to make sure that at least everyone's receiving stuff that they like. Um, the second thing that we do is we, you know, we really try to be strategic about what we source um, because we want to offer people like a really workable variety of produce. For instance, like our vegetable boxes, depending on the size, they'll always contain usually a green, a starch, and then two to five other vegetables, depending on, um, you know, what size box they get. But we never want it to be the case where you can, you get, you know, sweet potatoes and an acorn squash and potatoes, you know, like we try to really offer you a nice variety so that even though you may not be the one hand picking this, we're giving you like, you know, a lot of different stuff to work with. So you're not like stuck just working with root vegetables or just working with, you know, peppers or something that week. So so how many people are you kind of delivering to? Um, so we have about 400 customers right now. Um, we're finally starting to focus more on marketing and sales. It was something that up until recently I couldn't do and I just had to rely on word of mouth. So um, we're starting to grow. We actually had um, pretty much 50% growth in July. So it was really wow. exciting. Yeah, to see that some of our uh, you know ideas um, were finally you know, paying off. But uh, so, you know, I'm excited to see sort of, you know, what the next few months are going to look like. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, is there a sort of a limit at this point to how many people you could deliver to? I'm mean, sure because it sounds like you're doing a lot of this, you know, you're, you're limited by the numbers per hands you have to do this. So where, where do you think you are? Yeah. So there is a lot of considerations there because it's not just like, you know, first of all, you have to think about how much product can we, you know, actually source from our suppliers. And I don't buy anymore. I actually recently hired back in May um, a full-time employee and he's in charge of buying. So I'm a little out of touch at this point with our suppliers, but we could probably, you know, I think we're okay on supply just in terms of volume for a while. Um, winter might be a different story, but I guess we'll see when we get there. Um, but we have room to grow in terms of just straight up supply. Um, however, you know, our storage space, we're at a shared use facility and I really love the, you know, being a part of the community, but, um, 
you know, we're already running into issues where it's a little tight and we'll continue to make the space work for as long as possible. But um, me and my ops manager kind of see it as like, once we reach about 750 customers, we may have to start looking for sort of our medium stage growth space. Um, and then in terms of drivers, I mean, it's one of those things where we'd have to add new drivers. And it may be the case that I have to go back and do deliveries myself too, until we can find, you know, more drivers. But so there's sort of, you know, there's various considerations we have to make at each step in the process. But, um, you know, I think we, we definitely have room for a couple more hundred customers before I think we have to uh, drastically change the way that we operate. Are all of these, you know, you were sort of mentioning the, the drivers and these sort of, you know, the people working with you, these employees, is it, is it kind of all fully commercial employed kind of relationships or do you have volunteers and people kind of involved in that way? Uh, no, we, we pay our drivers. Um, we currently have um, three drivers on our team who do deliveries on Saturdays and Sundays, um, and we pay them. Um, the Sometimes I have to help, so that would, I'm the, I guess you could say I'm a volunteer at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, so everyone who works with us is paid. Um, you know, it's great to have people who want to volunteer, but um, we also don't want to, like, paint an unrealistic picture of, you know, what our, you know, costs to operate look like, you know, if we're not paying half the people. So, um, yeah. And we also want to, you know, we're small and there are challenges with trying to find really solid employees when you're a small company, because, um, you know, some people may not want to come in and just work for one day. If they're looking for a part-time job, they still want to have like 20 hours a week minimum. And we may not be at that stage yet where we, have 20 hours a week for, you know, an employee. Um, and so we've particularly noticed there have been challenges on hiring people to help us pack. Drivers is a little different because we do stuff on the weekends and people have flexibility. But um, finding people to help us pack, um, it's been a struggle to uh, have someone uh, go through the interview and then actually show up on packing day, you know. Um, so it's one of those things, again, where we're, like we have to be involved in the process probably for as long as possible until we reach that stage where, you know, we have enough hours for someone to really, you know, get them to, you know, get serious. But we do have a nice, you know, packing crew who shows up every Friday and they're, you know, great people too. So, you know, couldn't do it without them. And this, um, just to, not to stay sort of on this all too long, but I'm really, I'm, I'm interested in sort of like how this is really going to grow. So you're, you're, there's obviously, there's a kind of balance, um, it's kind of a chicken and egg sort of situation, isn't it? Where you, you know, you need the customers and to get the producers on board and you need the, you know, you, kind of where you can't really have one without the other, but to sort of how to build them up. Are you, where are you at the moment? Is it kind of, um, do you have more of one than the other? Do you have more customers potentially than you could supply to, or is it, is that where you need to grow now? Well, that's the absolute chicken and egg problem is that, and I realized this about a year ago when I was running this company myself and I felt like I hit a wall in terms of what I could do. Um, you know, I felt like we had outgrown our current, our older suppliers. Um, and you know, to get to that next level, you know, that size supplier, that medium to large size supplier, I mean, we would have to be significantly bigger to hit order minimums, um, you know, for them to, First of all, just apply to us, regardless of whether they're going to be trucking in the product from, you know, somewhere relatively local versus Florida. You know, so we are still far too small to hit order minimums, for for instance, on like industrial scale farms, um, you know, throughout the region. Um, so we had to 
you know, but then we also run into this issue. You don't want to grow too fast, of course, um, and not have the supply to meet the demand. So we've sort of had to figure out some creative ways to get around this problem where we can still, you know, continue to grow um, and supply to our growing customer base without, you know, without having to, you know, rely on the volumes that a, an industrial scale farm can provide. So, but it, that's like, that is the toughest part, um, I'd say, is because we're still very far off from hitting those order minimums in some cases. Um, but uh, yeah, we just really have to, you know, continue to diversify our, um, you know, our supplier network. And um, it may mean that we have to do a lot more pickups than we'd like to do or something like that. But, um, you know, we just have to do a good job done each week. So Is the hope to get to that point, though, eventually at some point that, you know, you can hit those minimums and you can deal with those big industrial farms? And that, yeah, that's, the- that's the goal. Because like that's as I mentioned before, like that's where we're really gonna get all that ugly produce, and we're gonna get it at you know a more realistic market price, you know, um, and you know especially if we're getting products from you know further south or whatever, we can be you know sourcing it year round um, because North Carolina has you know a wonderful you know summer season in particular, but you know, and even the fall and spring there's some great stuff, but like you know it's it's kale and sweet potatoes into winter. And, you know, we just can't rely on a lot of our growers in the winter because it's just not going to grow here. So. Yeah, that, that is a problem. So the, um, yeah, I suppose the last part of the puzzle uh, is the, you, you donate to local pantries. So sort of, I think, I think on the website is with every order, there's a, a sort of a match donation or a portion, something goes to, um, to a local pantry. How, is that a very important part of the business for you from the outset? Is that something that sort of you've just seen the need and kind of built it in? How how's that come to be? Yeah. So, I mean, when we started the company, you know, our goal was to a fight food waste, but to be serve the low income food insecure community in Durham. And we just got a lot of advice at first, just to focus on a more affluent customer base because they maybe had a little bit more flexibility as you're working out the kinks of your model. And since we started on campus, at Duke and spread through word of mouth, we were just over time able to reach just that more middle, upper middle class customer base. So at this point, we aren't serving, you know, the lower income community. And we also have some barriers to serving them because we cannot accept um, food stamps as an online retailer. Um, So we would have to do some like special partnerships where we could do like an in-person drop off and accept in-person payments to be able to accept food stamps. So in the meantime, you know, what we can do at the very least is donate all of our surplus each week to local food pantries. So it's still something that's very important to us. Um, part of it, I mean, it's also sort of beneficial for you know our own operations because every week we have to order a pretty serious amount of surplus produce because you never know with ugly produce how much you're going to have to pull out for it not meeting you know our you know strict you know quality standards, um, and then. On top of that, with ugly produce, because it's so misshapen, you don't know if you're going to get 100 pounds of zucchini and each one's going to be two pounds and you're not going to have enough to give it to all your customers or if they're all going to be tiny and you have more than enough, you know, to distribute because you can't cut the zucchini in half. So we always have to order way extra. Um, and so that means we always have extra. And it would really be a shame for us to just compost it all, you know, afterwards that really wouldn't, you know, align with our mission. So you know, what we do is we compost the stuff that's truly inedible, but we have hundreds and hundreds of pounds of, you know, surplus produce every week that would, you know, 
do much, you know, be much more, you know, better off going towards people who need it instead of into the compost bin. So yeah, each week, you know, we partner with some food pantries and, you know, donate those products there. And um, so that's really nice right now because we just can't offer food stamps at this point. So this is at least, you know, a good step in the right direction of getting fresh produce into the hands of people who truly need it. So the issue with food stamps is that they need to sort of be physically um, handed over. I I don't really, I don't know how they work in the the States, but is that, is there not an online, because I mean, an online option of any kind because I imagine that's that sort of makes things quite difficult for for the people that are using them yeah so um there may be some you know nuances and some special case scenarios but in general people are not allowed to use their food stamp payments online um so you know we've made a lot of progress now like farmers markets typically are accepting them things like that but you know you can't get anything online to my knowledge really with food stamps so um, and that's a problem because there's a lot of companies like Ungraded Produce out there that, you know, are online, but are really offering this discounted high quality produce to benefit communities such as the food insecure community. Um, but because of this barrier, we're really unable to make that impact that we want. So, we, you know, one way that we see um, ourselves being able to kind of get around this problem is to do something like partner with some community centers or churches where we drop off at their location once a week. And because we have to maybe set up a stand for people to come pick up their product, any food insecure customers who are picking up their box can then just pay in person. But, um, you know, I've started to try to make some of those partnerships and I had some difficulty to be honest. Um, you know, so it's something I'm going to, I'm not giving up on, but it wasn't as easy to develop these partnerships as I originally thought. So to be continued. Um, one thing, so one other other bit I'd like to just talk talk a bit more with you about um, is the sort of how you got started. And I know we we talked about it quite a bit actually at the beginning, but sort of what it just what it was like doing that as a student, and um, you know how you combined how did you combine sort of developing this business, this idea with a student life? Because you you've got commitments as a yeah. student, you can't you can't kind of abandon all that to do this idea so how, how did it go how yeah. did it, work? it was really really exciting first of all um especially at first when we first came up with the idea I finally just felt like I had a calling um and you know that was maybe before I had learned enough about the industry and running business you know to really understand that it can be super challenging it's not as glamorous as it seems but you know at first it was really exciting um and then you know once we started operating it was still exciting but became real and was a bit scary, especially as a senior when, you know, I was graduating that year and my parents had given me their blessing to let me run this company, you know, after graduation. So I didn't have to look for a job. It could be really hard to see your friends going off to grad school or to a job where there's certainty. And, you know, I'm committed to running a company that currently only has 15 customers, you know, so that was a little scary, but I will say um, the timing of starting this company was really great for me. Um, you know, junior year for us was really just a kind of feel it out, figure it out kind of year. And it wasn't until senior year that we started to operate. And, you know, the first semester of senior year with 15 customers, I probably spent 10 hours a week at the most doing stuff. You know, it, at that point, you know, it was a side, very, very much a side project. But, you know, by second semester, A, we were serving like 60 customers at that point and on a weekly basis. And I was having to try to figure out how in the world I was going to get 50 
off-campus customers signed up for the summer to be able to move forward in my program. And so that semester, it was all stress. All I could think about was the business or was working on the business. And, you know, as a second semester senior who was only taking three classes, I was able to make it work. But even in my classes, with the exception of one class, I paid no attention at all. I was just on email, working on stuff all the time. Um, So, you know, it totally consumed me that second semester. And, you know, but the timing was really great. You know, if this, if we'd really started to pick up the pace when I was still like a junior, I don't know if I could have made it through my last year of Duke, you know, Mm -hmm. balancing schoolwork and also running a business. Um, You know, so I had friends who are also student entrepreneurs who started their business when they were like freshmen or sophomores. I'm like, I don't know how you're making it through Duke while spending so much time in the business. Like for me, it just really worked out that there was an expectation that you weren't giving a crap about school your second semester senior year. And because of the business, I didn't give a crap about school, you know, it worked out. Um, So yeah, I lucked out in that regard. I mean, would you, if it's it's obviously it's working out, but did you, did you sort of think at any point that you'd kind of done the wrong thing or that you were kind of, you know, you, that you, did you ever doubt it at all? It doesn't seem that way, but. Every day, pretty much. (laughs) Just pretty much every day. Even now there's, there's, there are days where I don't feel it in my heart, but I regret it. But I just say it like when something happens on the weekend to one of your employees and you have to change all your plans for the 8 millionth time and you, you lose sleep because you're always worried something's going to go wrong. You're just like, why the, why am I doing this? Like, mm. but you know, and I feel it in my heart. I'm like, you know, you like doing this, even though you don't get to sleep on the weekends anymore and things like that, you know, like, but early on, I mean, I think up until recently when we really started to kind of pick up the pace with growth and, you know, we've had an investment in the past six months and, you know, I hired my first time full-time employee and, you know, exciting things are happening. But up until then I pretty much, you know, had a couple moments of doubt every single day because, you know, I just felt like what I was doing sounded really great on paper, but I just wasn't feeling like, you know, living it. I didn't feel like it was going as well as people, you know, thought it was to me. So, Mm -hmm. um, and it was really hard. Um, so I, yeah, I probably would not be running it at this point, to be honest, if I didn't have like the support of like my parents, um, they've been emotionally and financially really, really, um, supportive. So, um, I'm incredibly lucky. If people ask you, you know, for advice, if people say, you know, should, if, you know, somebody who's a, a junior with an idea, I don't know if you're still sort of plugged into those, those kind of networking things, but when you're talking to people, do you, do you say, do you advise them to go for it? Do you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm one of those entrepreneurs who, if I weren't running my company, I probably wouldn't be running a company. I'm just really passionate about my company. Whereas I have friends who read all the entrepreneur books and are always talking about it. They're just like fascinated by the concept. And that's just not me. Um, So sometimes, you know, I'm not the right person to talk to about that. I still encourage people to go for it. But, you know, know, I tell them, you you really have to care about this, not just about running company. You really have to care about this um, because it's just going to get harder. And your passion for what you're doing is the only thing that's going to kind of keep you in there. Um, But I also give, you know, generally the advice that I give to people um, is just to like go really slowly Um, because I think a lot of times, especially in a startup environment, there's this sort of, need to like push people to just go all the time. Oh, you know, so-and-so, 
you know, work 16 hours a day and on the weekends. Um, and, you know, so-and-so, you know, has $100,000 in monthly revenue after a year. You know, everyone's different. Everyone's businesses are different. The circumstances are different and the people are different. And I feel like, you know, not everyone operates the same way. And oftentimes when you try to go too fast, you A, burn yourself out. B, you just sort of, you, you miss like the really obvious solutions. You just, cause you're like, spread so thin you're not thinking through things clearly and so you just make a lot of like unnecessary mistakes that wouldn't happen if you just sort of went at a you know more gradual pace so that's sort of the advice i give to people is just like slow down it's gonna happen it doesn't need to happen tomorrow and take care of yourself um because you know you you're this company and you need to have like you need to be balanced and happy in order to do well so no i think that's great advice you know people I think it's and it's really hard to do when it gets when it gets really tough, you know, and you're and you're busy. I think the temptation is often to just sort of get your head down and just work, 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 you know. But to sort of to be able to get your head up and kind of see what's going on around you is, yeah, that's, that's very good advice. If you can, if you can do that, that's I think that's the way to go. Um, I I tend to I, I ask sort of some more general questions towards the end of all of these interviews and uh, so it's sort of just more um away from the things that we've been talking about but uh, there's a couple I thought I'd ask you um and the first one is just in the context of food um if I say success who do you think of and why well I mean I've always I know everyone talks about him all the time but like you know authors like Michael Pollan I think were really, you know, amazing for, I think, introducing the general public to, you know, these issues about food. I mean, I was interested at that point, but it wasn't until I, you know, he, he sort of laid it out for you in layman's terms. Um, and it was able to help me sort of contextualize the issues and, you know, figure out what area, like, I really cared about. Um, so I think, you know, people like him are amazing for, um, you know, just kind of making the public more aware um, and norm, almost normalizing it, um, in a weird way. But, um, so people like him and then, um, yeah, that's my biggie. But, um, I mean, I just respect, there's a lot of people in like my local Raleigh, Durham, environmental and food communities who they're running their own, you know, companies and are kicking butt. And I just respect all those people because, you know, because it's, I guess a more like, it's a more intimate environment. I can sort of, you know, even if I wasn't around when they were starting their company, I can still sort of see how they got to the point where they were. And I just really respect them because I feel like in, you know, media all the time, it's just people have an idea and then boom, a week later, they're running the super successful company. So you never really get to see people kind of go through the struggles. So I get to interact with those people and hear about their struggles. And I really respect everyone for, you know, pushing through. Absolutely. And uh, just a final question. Um, what is your favorite thing to do that has nothing to do with food? Mm -hmm. um, talking to my best friend and watching Real Housewives. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Switch off completely. Um, that's been awesome. Thank you very, very much. Is there anything you'd like to sort of leave people with, people listening, 
somewhere you'd like them to go and look your website I don't know um, how what would you like them to kind yeah, of yeah well I mean to do after listening to yeah me? I mean I think it would be awesome if anyone wants to check out our website it's ungradedproduce.com not upgraded un with an n gradedproduce.com um but um I think also one main takeaway that I have had from running this company and something I tell people is that like you can also make an impact from just very small changes, whether it's only eating, you know, you don't have to cut out meat entirely. You can eat meat twice a week and boom, like you're helping the environment so much, or you can just think about eating ugly produce instead of regular produce. You're not making a huge trade off. It tastes the same. Um, you know, it has the same, you know, shelf life and everything, but you know, it's doing really wonders for the environment and it is, also, you're voting with your wallet in that case and really showing, you know, where you want our resources to be going towards. So um, just, yeah, these little simple solutions in, you know, our lifestyles, I think, are really going to pay off if we all, you know, make those, you know, little baby steps together. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it. You know, a lot of these a lot of these issues sort of seem very huge and overwhelming and, and you know, like you can't do anything about. But, yeah, small steps. Absolutely. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much for, for your time. And um, yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much.